Good morning. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Thanks, God, for the time that we can gather together and now as one family, one church, one fellowship, one body, and to give you praise, um, to worship you with our words, with our prayers, with our songs, and now with the careful attention to the proclamation of your word. Through this word, we ask that you would bring us comfort, that we ask that you would bring us a challenge, that you would feed us, and now give us listening ears, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Black speech is one of the fictional languages that was constructed by J.R.R. Tolkien for his book, The Lord of the Rings, a series. Um, it was spoken in this evil realm of Mordor. That it was a speech that was invented by Sauron that all of his minions would have to speak this soul language, and it would replace all these different languages. It's, a, it's generally thought of as being an accursed, wicked, evil speech, and we only have the example in the, the ring that, that rules them all. In the inscription is written in black speech, so it has a particularly vileness to the spell. There's a particular scene in one of the movies where they're gathered together at the Council of Elrond, and Frodo produces the ring, telling all the rest of them that this is what we're fighting for. But the ring has this special draw, this evil draw to it. And one of the uh, humans gets up, the um, Legolas gets up to, to talk about the ring, and he's so drawn to it that he's about ready to take the ring. And then Gandalf interrupts with this black speech, and it's terrifying, it, it's awful, it's, it's vile. I had to include that because Hanson and Jacob told me that if I didn't use a Lord of the Rings reference that I wasn't truly reformed. But <laughs> Black speech has also become kind of a vernacular term for language that's just short of being profane. And so it's, 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 you use black speech when you want to have a string of dark, insulting words. And you know who's an expert at black speech? My four-year-old grandson. So I'll call him up. and. Uh, he has, he has a particular knack at putting together these long strings of descriptors that declare that, that I either smell like or look like something like barf, diarrhea, or butt. And it usually includes some zoo animal, the eating of or the producing of one of those things. And so he's really good at it, and I wish I could show you on the screen. Of course, there's another example, you know, in the movie, What About Bob? So what about Bob? Bob and Ziggy are jumping up and down on the bed, and they're yelling at each other, you know, poop for brains, dingleberry butt, snot face, vulture vomit, belch breath, and Dr. Marvin breaks in. He goes, what are you guys doing? And he said, well, we're, it's, we're, we're pretending we have Tourette's. He goes, well, I want some peace and quiet. And Bob says, I'll, I'll be quiet. And then Ziggy says, I'll be peace. <laughs> Anyway, the passage before us today is an example of religious black speech. Here's this hostile exchange between the high priest of Israel and the apostle Paul, and, and it's really vitriolic. But in the end, um, besides the black speech that takes place between these guys and several others, then we have Jesus entering into the fray. He has something to say as well. So take your Bible and turn with me where we left off last week from Acts um, chapter 23, Verse 30, Acts 23:30. Now you remember Paul's on a, a mission. He's, he wants to reach Jerusalem. He wants to worship in the temple. He wants to bring the offering that he's collected among the Gentiles to the hurting church in Jerusalem. But most importantly, 
his mission and the reason he needs to go personally instead of just sending the money and sending his goodwill is that there's a growing division that's taking place in the church between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So Paul is determined to go there to try to heal the rift that's taking place in the church. But all along the way, the Holy Spirit is warning him through Christian brothers and sisters that when he gets to Jerusalem, what waits for him is not good. It means imprisonment, it means abuse, it means persecution, but he's determined to go anyway because he's willing to pay whatever the cost is to run the course that the Lord has set before him. So he gets to Jerusalem, they receive a very warm welcome. We're now in uh, Chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, there's this warm welcome from the Jerusalem Christian, particularly from James, the elder, not um, the, the, the disciple James, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. But there's a problem, and that is that a rumor has been circulating that Paul, in his journeys among the, among the Gentiles, is teaching Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon their Jewish tradition and their Jewish faith and their Jewish practices. And this is a serious thing because this, this rumor has um, cast some serious uh, questions upon Paul that he's telling Jews to abandon their culture and their custom. So in order to prove this rumor false, James and the elders advised Paul to take part in a purification ceremony at the temple and Paul would uh, pay for the way of these other guys. And that will show, especially the Jewish Christians, that Paul's not against Judaism, that he's not telling people that you have to abandon Judaism to embrace Christianity. And by the way, they say, we're not imposing anything new upon the Gentile church. We're, we're just um, requiring them to do what we, we told them before. And that they, the Gentiles don't have to embrace Judaism in order to get saved, and the Jews don't have to abandon Judaism in order to be Christians. So Paul takes place in uh, this purification ceremony, and while he's at the temple on the last day of this seven-day purification rite, there are some Jews from Asia, meaning the Roman province of Asia, today's modern-day Turkey, who recognize Paul and recognize one of his Gentile companions. And their, their, their logic is flawed, but they're putting together that they've seen Paul in Jerusalem with these Gentiles, and they see Paul in the temple. And so they yell out, brothers, help us. This is the guy that we're telling you about. And when they ask for these other Jews to help, because the assumption is that he's brought Gentiles into the holy temple, there's a riot that breaks out. The Roman commander sends out a powerful force, probably 200 soldiers, to break up the riot, and in the process, they rescue Paul. The Roman commander thinks Paul is this Egyptian terrorist, the Sicari, um, who's led this insurrection three years earlier. So he's about ready to question Paul, and Paul tells him, I'm not that Egyptian terrorist. I am a, a Jew from a, a very prominent city of Cilicia, the city of Tarsus. The Roman soldier is quite surprised that Paul speaks to him in educated Greek and allows him to speak to the, the rioting Jews that are at the stairs of the Antonian fortress. And here's a curious thing that happens next, that Paul begins to speak to them, to his crowd in Aramaic. And that's curious because the commander probably doesn't know Aramaic, and none of the Roman soldiers would, 
but neither would the Hellenistic Jews, including his accusers who've come from Ephesus. They would not speak Aramaic. The only people that would understand this speech are the native Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. And he gives his speech, which seems to go along fine, until Paul, as he was relating his conversion, tells them the only reason that he's gone to the Gentiles is he's doing so because God himself has commanded him to speak to the Gentiles. And the reason for God sending them, him to the Gentiles is the unbelief of the Jews. The Jews go nuts at this point, and the riot starts all over again. And once again, the commander has to rescue Paul from the Jews uh, to, sec to secure him. But he's got a problem. He still doesn't know why the Jews are rioting, and he still doesn't know what Paul has done. And his solution is that he'll have Paul flogged. He'll have him tortured to tell him the truth about what the Jews are so lit up about. They're about ready to flog him. And Paul says, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? And of course, it's not. And so now the commander's trying to think, well, how do I get at the bottom of this and bring peace back to Jerusalem? So his plan, and this brings us up to the text before us today, his plan is to bring Paul before the high court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, and let them discern what the charges are so that he has some charge to, to arrest Paul for. Now we're in Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he's being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the commander here is Claudius Lysias. He needs to know what he's being charged with. And so this is not a formal trial. This is a pre-trial. Um, it's not a formal court. Uh, he, he, there's no way that Lys Lysias is going to hand over a Roman citizen to a bunch of Jews um, until he has real charges to, to bring against him. And so there's, there, you notice in this court pre-trial, there's no charges. He's not standing before them with charges. There are no witnesses to the charge. And most likely this is not being held at the typical place where the Sanhedrin would meet because the Romans would not be welcome there. Most likely this is just outside of this uh, Antonian fortress, a, a non-typical place for the court to meet. And that way, if things go south again, he could rescue Paul again. After all, now he has to protect a Roman citizen. Now, this, uh, this appearance of Paul before the Sanhedrin actually marks the fifth time now that the Sanhedrin has been confronted with Christianity. The first one, of course, when Jesus um, gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, and then uh, John and Peter were arrested, and they give the Sanhedrin their version of Christianity. Then right after that, the, all the apostles are arrested. Uh, then Stephen is arrested, and he speaks to the Sanhedrin. And now this is the fifth and final time that this court, this high court of the Jews, will hear Christianity. They will, this is the last time that they will hear a witness um, from Christ. And the significant here is that their rejection of the messenger is also a rejection of the message. The high court of Israel is rejecting Christianity and the truth claims of Christ now for the fifth and final time, and it symbolizes the, the nation's rejection of its Messiah. 
So immediately we're struck with there's a contrast here between the Romans and the Jews. The Romans are considered, they're concerned here about keeping law and order. They're, they're, um, their interest is in promoting justice and maintaining order. The Jews, as we will find here, don't share that consideration. They're not interested in justice, and they're certainly not interested in order. Their only concern is they want to get Paul killed. And that brings us to verse 1. 23.1. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So it's a surprising introduction right off the bat because here Paul is addressing the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel, with the term brothers. He places himself equal to them. That's not the normal way of addressing the high court. The normal way would be of fathers and rulers of the court of Israel, but Paul doesn't do that. And I think the reason is that Paul, he knows a lot of these guys. Uh, he, has, he has been a teacher of Gamaliel, and probably some of these guys were also, I mean students of Gamaliel, probably some of these guys were also students of Gamaliel. And Paul tells us in Acts 26, 10, that he was actually one who cast his vote against Stephen. So. Paul is somehow an associate voting member of the Sanhedrin, or, or had been. And certainly a lot of the members of the Sanhedrin are Pharisees, and Paul is among this group. He also is a Pharisee. Um, they certainly would have known Paul. They would have been familiar with his work, especially earlier, like 20 years ago, when he was busy helping them to eradicate the church. And so instead of addressing the Sanhedrin in this very formal uh, rulers and elders, fathers of the people, he addresses them merely as, as brothers, as equals. But that's not what gets him into trouble. It's the next thing he says which really makes things get south. Um, he's, Paul tells them again in verse 1 that he, he's claimed to live unto this day in good conscience. So that's a strikingly bold statement, isn't it? And when we look back as Bible students, we would say, whoa, 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 whoa. How could Paul possibly say that he's lived his whole life up to this day in a good conscience? Because we've been talking about how Paul was busy persecuting the church, how he was busy chasing down Christians, how he voted for some of their executions, um, and he would himself admit that uh, later on that that was, that was a great error that he had been engaged in, and especially being instrumental in the death of, uh, of Stephen, the first martyr. So how is it that Paul is now telling the Sanhedrin that up until this day I have lived my life in a good conscience? And the answer is that Paul had indeed lived his life in good conscience. He, he was wrong, and it required the intervention of the Lord Jesus to show how he was wrong. But up until this time, everything that he did, he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was serving God. He didn't think he was wrong. He fervently believed that everything he was doing was right. So he would write to the, the Philippians in uh, Philippians 3.6. He, he would say, as for legalistic righteousness, I am faultless or, 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 or righteous. So he wasn't faultless in God's sight. We understand that looking back, and so does he. But as far as he knew then, he had been living in good conscience. Now, a conscience is a really tricky thing to follow up because a conscience can tell you that you should do the right thing and that you should not do the wrong thing. The problem is that a conscience can be uninformed. A conscience can tell you to do the right thing, but a conscience can't tell you what is 
the right thing. So you can have a misinformed conscience that you don't know what the right thing is unless you have the illumination of the Word of God. You don't know what is right. And see, Paul doesn't know what is right until Christ intervenes. Now, a lot of people will claim that, they, that they're acting in good conscience, but their conscience may be misinformed. It may be ignorant. Uh, conscience can also become callous. You can become, through um, long terms of repetitive sin, you can become really indifferent to the effect of sin to the point where you don't consider it to be sin anymore. It can be uh, scarred. You know, like, for instance, you commit a sin, and as a Christian, when you commit a sin, one of the hallmarks of being a Christian is your deep grief that you feel. You hate your sin. You hate yourself. You are so grieved by your sin initially that you, know, you, you have just loathe for life in general. But as you repeat that sin, your conscience becomes less stricken. You feel less guilty about it until finally your conscience can be um, so scarred, uh, so callous, that you eventually you don't feel remorse for sin. So you can be engaged in doing something that is wrong, and you know it's wrong, but you don't respond to your conscience anymore. Or the other case is that you can be doing something that you think is right, but you're misinformed because you, you don't know that which is right. Okay, so ver back to our text, verse 2. Now, we don't have here the words of the high priest, so we don't have his, the high priest's black speech recorded, but we do have the consequence of it, and so we can pretty much fill it in with our sanctified imagination. Verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. So here's the high priest. He represents God to the people. He speaks for God to the people. He's the, he's the, uh, the, the highest authority in this high court of, of the Jews at the Sanhedrin. And he is furious that Paul has just said up until this time he's acted in good conscience. He's just furious at that. So he orders those that are standing next to him to punch him in the mouth. Now this high priest is Ananias. He's the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I don't remember now. At any rate, he had been appointed to be a high priest in 47 um, A.D. by Herod Agrippa, the first younger brother, Herod of uh, Chalcis. So he, he's only been, been the high priest appointed now for 11 years. Now, that's important because Paul has been gone for 20. Now, this, guy, uh, this guy's a real rascal, and he often uses murder and violence to, to get his way. Josephus reports that Ananias uh, was so greedy that when the, when the threshing was being done and the tithe were set, tithes were being set apart for the priest, that Ananias would send his servants in there to confiscate the priest's tithes for himself, thereby depriving the priests of the tithes. Uh, he became very wealthy um, for that um, but he was also a Roman uh, suck-up. And so in 66, when the war broke out between the Jews and the Romans, the zealots found Ananias hiding in an aqueduct, and they drug him out and killed him. But anyway, back to the case here. Um, in this very cruel, 
violent, illegal act, the high priest orders those that are standing next to Paul to punch him in the mouth. Now, this is not a Will Smith, Chris Rock kind of a stage slap. You know, this is a real punch in the mouth, knock your teeth out, make your mouth bleed kind of a thing. But isn't it ironic here that he is, they, they would do this as a, as a supreme insult to someone who had said something inappropriate. You know, this is way worse than having your mom wash your mouth out with soap. This is, you get punched in the mouth because you talk like that. So now here's Paul's black speech retort to the high priest, verse 3. <clears throat> then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet according, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Because we've run into a similar term here. He calls them a whitewashed wall. And of course, that was a common uh, cliche, a metaphor for being called a hypocrite. And it, there's a couple different ways to look at it. You know, maybe the, a wall is rickety and weak, and you whitewash it, and you can't tell that it's a weak wall. It looks firm. Or else it's dirty, and it's whitewashed, and so it looks clean, but really it's, it's filthy. And, and that's term was used by Ezekiel back in Ezekiel 13, verse 10, about the whitewashed wall. Um, a similar figure of speech is used by Jesus when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And so the implication there, of course, is that they're full of crud on the inside, but on the outside they look so pretty and so pristine. There's an extra biblical expression here from the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca who lived in this same period of time. Seneca's years are 4 B.C. to 65 A.D. So Seneca's alive during this time. But Seneca said, these base and sordid spirits are like the walls of their own houses, only beautiful on the outside. What are our gilt roof but lies? For we well know that under the gilding, unseemingly beams are concealed. It's not only our walls which are coated with a thin outward ornament. The greatness of those men whom you see strutting in their pride is mere tinsel. Look beneath the surface and you will see all the evil that is hid under the thin crust of dignity. So that's a longer way of saying it, but that's kind of what Paul's saying right here. He's, he's calling the uh, high priest of Israel a hypocrite. And again, it's, there's an irony here because this high priest of Israel is supposed to represent God to the people. And here he is uh, anything but representing God. He's an example of, of prejudice and injustice, of violence and, uh, and law-breaking because he's a, he orders a man who's not convicted, not even accused, he orders him to be struck. Uh, Paul is in effect saying that, that uh, the high priest Ananias is, is a hypocrite and acts contrary to the law. Remember when uh, Nicodemus um, came to Jesus, uh, John uh, 750, uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? So there's a recognition that, you know, we don't condemn someone prior to a, a, a hearing. And the curious thing for us is when Paul blurts out, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, it doesn't really sound all that Christian, does it? You know, it, it, it sounds kind of harsh. Uh, it doesn't sound like a Christian response, but it does, however, sound like Jesus, like when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, that they were whitewashed tombs. And so Paul is rebuking 
this high priest for his hypocrisy. Verse 4. <coughs> Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, he was the high priest, for it's written you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So um, Paul rebukes this high priest, and he is rebuked for his rebuke. And Paul makes the claim that he didn't know. He claims ignorance. He's not excusing his behavior. In fact, he recognizes right away that it's been improper. He admits his fault. He says, I was ignorant. I didn't know he was the high priest. I wouldn't have if I had known that. And then he quotes from um, Ezekiel 22, verse 28. And he, he says, he, he, he basically owns up to it. He mans up to his mistake and he apologizes for it. But it brings to our mind, how does Paul not recognize the high priest? In verse 1, we're told he's looking straight at the Sanhedrin. And yet here he says, I was ignorant. I didn't know he was the high priest. How do you harmonize those things? Well, there's there's several answers that have been given. Um, One is is that Paul has poor eyesight and he couldn't see across the room to recognize that he was a high priest. And there's good evidence for that. When I stand here, does it echo for you? Okay, I'll stand on this side then. Um, At the end of the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, 11, Paul normally has a secretary write for him. He dictates and the secretary, the amanuensis, writes it down. When it gets to the end of the book, he signs it to show authenticity. So you get to Galatians 6, 11, and Paul says, see what great letters I write with, big, with big letters I write with. So there's, there's good evidence that Paul had, had uh, weak eyes, and so he, he couldn't see the high priest uh, or, or recognize it. Another, a second option is that he's just being sarcastic, because Certainly, God's high priest is not going to give an illegal, violent order. So he says, I didn't recognize that he was the high priest because a true high priest wouldn't behave like that, wouldn't talk like that, give an illegal command. The third explanation, and this is one I was alluding to earlier, is that when Paul left Jerusalem, the high priest was Caiaphas, not Ananias. And in the 20 years since he's been gone, Ananias has become the high priest. In fact, in the last 11 years, he's become the high priest, but Paul doesn't know him. And so when he sees him in this kind of impromptu setting, remember, they're not in the formal courtroom. When he sees this guy in this non-formal setting, maybe he's not dressed as the high priest. He doesn't know. He honestly doesn't know that high priest is uh, Ananias, and so therefore he doesn't recognize him. But whatever the explanation is, the important thing is that when they tell him that, he, that you just mouthed off to the high priest. He admits it. He, he, he recognizes his error. He accepts responsibility for his words. He's very humble and non-defensive. That's a, a good attitude of a mature believer. Uh, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, 
and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if an angel or a spirit did speak to him? So the, the, look at here. Remember the riot that this was all precipitated by in the, in the temple. The riot which was started had to do with him bringing a Gentile into the holy temple. But no mention here is made of that charge because that's not really why Paul is being drugged before this high court, is it? There's a, a more fundamental issue, a, a bigger problem here, and the problem is really wrapped up into this question, the whole matter of the resurrection. Now, when we're talking about the resurrection, we, we're not talking specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is getting to, although that is an important aspect of it for us as Christians. Um, what he's talking about is the resurrection in general. This is the hope of Christians. Your hope is not when you die, you get to go to heaven. Your hope as a Christian is that you uniquely as a human being are an eternal spirit dwelling in a physical body and you are not completely human if you have one part and not the other. And so our hope is in our own resurrection that one day there will be this reunion of our spirits with our physical body. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's saying that this is the whole issue about which we're debating. This is why I'm in trouble with you guys, isn't it? It is about my hope in the resurrection. Our age, like these Sadducees, we just tend to focus on that which can be seen and that which can be felt and that which is physically observable. And so we disbelieve anything which lacks this scientific testability. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believe in the resurrection and they believe in that which is unseen. And the Christian also, like the Pharisee, believes in something which goes beyond our senses, beyond that which is tangible to that which is intangible, we have a hope that there is a reality beyond what we can see and feel and touch. And our hope is in this resurrection. So in this world that is linked metaphysically between the rational and, and the, 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 the resurrection, Christians like Paul have to be able to get up and say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, because that is our ultimate hope. That's what Paul's talking about, the hope and the resurrection. He's not talking about Christ's resurrection, but Christ's resurrection proves the reality of that hope. Are you still with me? So being himself a Pharisee, Paul is calling out for the defense of these other Pharisees. And he says, I'm being tried here because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. That is the central truth of Christianity. And Paul asserted that this belief is, is uh, essential. Now, that's something that he held in common with the Pharisees as a Pharisee. And then Luke goes on to tell us, uh, he adds this note here, um, that there arose this dissension between the Pharisees and the, assembly, and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. The Sadducees, Luke is explaining, say there is no resurrection, there's no angels, there are no spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And that's because the Sadducees are a group of people that recognize only the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 
And so they think there's nothing in the Pentateuch which talks about angels and spirits and the afterlife. Therefore, they disbelieve in that. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in a resurrection and an afterlife. So the Pharisees are much more compatible with Christianity. F.F. Bruce notes, a Sadducee could not become a Christian without abandoning the distinctive theological position of his party. A Pharisee could become a Christian and remain a Pharisee. So when Paul says the real issue here is not bringing Gentiles into the temple, the real issue here is my hope in the life to come, my hope in the resurrection. And the Pharisee party, though there's this uh, bitterness between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisee parties come to Paul's defense um, and then say, well, what if an angel did talk to him? What if a spirit really did talk to him? You know, who are we to say? Claudius Lysias, in the meantime, the Roman guard is, is perplexed once again because once more these fanatic Jews are going nuts and they're rioting. And once more, he has to come to Paul's rescue to keep the Jews from tearing him apart. And finally, we come to verse 10. A great dissension was developing into violence. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. Once again, the Romans are stepping in. All right, so internal summary here. So far... We have talked about black speech from Mordor, from the Lord of the Rings. We've talked about black speech from a four-year-old in his, in his gutter mouth. We've talked about black speech from What About Bob. We've talked about black speech from the Jewish high priest. We've talked about black speech from Paul. We've talked about black speech from the Pharisees to the Sadducees and vice versa. Now Jesus steps in with some words of his own, and it's not black speech. Verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. And the English really doesn't do justice to this text because it just says here the Lord stood by him. And the Greek is much more uh, forceful than that, uh, much more intense. The language here is that the presence of Jesus overshadows Paul, there's this awesomeness, and here's Paul cringing in his cell, and then suddenly the risen Christ comes and stands over him. And what does the risen Christ have to say to Paul? He says, be of good cheer. Well, the, the Latin translation of that word is founded on our English word, is where our English word is founded upon, is the, the word to be constant or, or constancy. And so Jesus is not telling Paul something glib like, Cheer up. You know, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, stay the course. Be constant. Stay with the ministry that you've been given all these years. Keep going. You're doing fine. Don't you think that's a message we all long to hear, too? I mean, don't you long for Jesus to come alongside you and say, you're doing well. You're running the course. Keep at it. Don't quit. Keep going. We, we long to hear Jesus give us these words, not of cheer up. Everything's going to be fine, but keep going. Because you know what? Things might, might not be fine. Things might not be getting better. And here's the Lord. He comes to Paul in this dark hour, and he brings these words of comfort and words of hope. And he tells him that 
that he's on the right track, he's doing the right thing, that what he's done, he's completed the first phase of what he's wanted Paul, the Lord's wanted Paul to do, and now he's saying, but there's more work for you ahead. You know, that's, that's something we all like to hear. You know, you've, you've done well. You're doing the work that I ask you to do. There's more work to do, unless you're lazy. If you're lazy, that sounds awful. You know, there's more work to do. Ugh. But uh, if you are a faithful servant and the Lord says, you've done well, I have more work to do, uh, that, those are words of encouragement, uh, words that sustain us, words that give us hope. Um, you notice here, Jesus is not saying to Paul, cheer up. Um, he's telling him to be constant. And the reason that Jesus is telling him that is because Paul needs to hear that right now. There wouldn't be any point in saying that. Certainly Paul's very much aware things are not going well. Things seem bad right now. But you know what? He doesn't know the half of it. They're going to get a lot worse. What Paul doesn't know is the next day, for you the next week, there are 40 assassins who have made a pledge that they are not going to eat until they've murdered Paul. So things for Paul are going from bad to worse. He doesn't know that, but Jesus knows that. And Jesus is telling Paul, stay at it. It's okay. You might be thinking, you might be in one of those places in life right now where you feel like things are really going badly for me. And I'm not about to tell you, no, they're not. I might say, yeah, but they're going to be a lot worse. Because <laughs> that's the kind of counselor I am. <laughs> they, may, they may be worse than you possibly know. And the reason is, the Lord's not telling Paul to be of good cheer because everything's fine. And he doesn't tell you to be of good cheer because everything's going to work out fine. The reason for this is that God is still on his throne and God is still in control, and God who makes promises keeps promises, and one of the promises that God has made to you is that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Anyone can be of good cheer when things are going well, when life is easy, but a Christian can be of good cheer when life is rotten and we can have confidence because we can know that God is mighty and God is loving, no matter what the crisis of the moment. So Jesus says, you've testified for me in Jerusalem. That's the compliment that he gives, a job well done. And now he's saying, but there's more to do. You have to also bear witness to me in Rome. That's the next assignment. F.F. Bruce says, this assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which from now on marks him out as master of events rather than their victim. The black speech of Mordor in The Lord of the Rings is, is terrifying, it's hateful, it's hurtful, it's a language that sounds cruel to the ears, it's full of hard consonants, guttural sounds, it's always spoken loudly and harshly, and the people that are speaking it are off, often as evil as the sound that they make. I, I think, you know, we hear too much of that in our life already. And that, the reason for that is that we're, we're so familiar 
in hearing the language of a race of individuals who are rebellious against God, who have rejected him and are living in that rebellion. And so we, it's so natural for us to speak it and so common that we hear it. How lovely then to hear the words of Jesus, our Savior, inviting us into his presence, assuring us of his care and his purpose when he comes alongside and says, be of good cheer, uh, stay the course. Uh, let's, uh, there's a song that, uh, it's, it's a contemporary song right now done by Sidewalk Prophets and it's called Come to the Table. And the song says, we all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where grace begins. We were hungry and we were thirsty with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in, just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be free. Come to the table. Meet this mighty crew of misfits, these liars, these thieves, there's no one unwelcome here. That sin and shame that, brought, that you brought with you, you can leave it at the door and let mercy draw you near. So come to the table. Come join sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Today as we take uh, communion together uh, for the first time together in what, two years now? It's a glad reminder um, that we are sharing this meal with each other, with one another. And, and I realize Hansen calls these the Lord's Supperable. You know, we're getting those little cups with the wafer on them again. I realize there's a certain s sterileness about this, but the point is that we are recognizing the body of Jesus. We are acknowledging his blood uh, shared for us. So today, if, if you have a redeemer, if you place your hope and your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, then I invite you to come to the table. And I'll invite the men who will be distributing the elements and um, our musicians to come forward. Renee and Connie? Yeah. But let's pray as they do. Father God, as we are preparing to take this communion, I pray that you're preparing our hearts to receive it, uh, to acknowledge the righteous life of Jesus lived in complete compliance in our behalf, his righteousness now credited to us. We acknowledge his blood shed on the cross. And that as you look down on our lives, just as you look down on the Ark of the Covenant, and you see the broken commandments, the broken promises, the vileness of our sin, you have to look through the blood of Jesus, and you're satisfied. The price was paid, and instead of seeing our sin, you see only the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I pray that his blood covers us that we are forgiven in his name. And so we set aside these common things, this bread and this juice, to represent a very uncommon, a holy and sacred thing, the body of Jesus. 
And we acknowledge as we share this meal today, these are not common people. These are those for whom you have given your life. These are those you have called to be redeemed. Father, may you be pleased as we share in this communion today. May Christ Jesus be glorified. We ask it in his name. Amen.